This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Beyond simply meeting one another, most humans have made relationships a central focus of their lives. We all know that humans are fascinated by relationships. Human relationships are an inspiration for art, music, conversation, novels, movies, games, and sports, ad infinitum. Our lives are essentially about relationships, whether it be business relationships, political relationships, familial relationships, social relationships, romantic relationships, friendships, and even adversarial relationships. Thus, the purpose of the universe, meeting mysterious others, fits the human experience particularly well. Relationships are possible based on the separation that is provided by human individuality. We must be separate from what we're relating to. Therefore, some sort of separation is required for relationships to occur. The physical realm provides a setting that includes physical separation between people. The space between one person and another provides the opportunity for us to relate to each other as separate individuals. Still, it's an illusion. The deeper truth is that everything is part of a seamless whole. In spite of the seamless wholeness, each of us experience being an individual human. Finding out how it feels to meet mysterious others is simple. We do it effortlessly. This is because each of us have been fashioned into individuals and placed among other separate individuals. This makes us in our physical reality well-suited to accomplishing the goal of discovering how it feels to meet mysterious others. Passagen, The Magnificent Soul by George Chise. Valeria Tellas interviews George Chise, the author of My Open-Hearted Life, Opening to Love While Solving Life's Greatest Mysteries, and The Magnificent Soul, The Art of Living in a World Founded on Consciousness. George has been following his inner guidance throughout his entire life. He received a Master's of Science in Mechanical Engineering degree from MIT in 1985. After choosing to step away from the high-tech world and toward nature, George bicycled around the USA for three years and then moved to Maui, Hawaii. There, he delved into living close to nature while designing and building unique structures that fit the landscape and local weather conditions. His designs merged simple yet practical structures with a mild yet windy and rainy climate to create an indoor-outdoor experience. Then, while living close to nature, he delved deeper into his soul to uncover a novel three-part triality of human consciousness that demystifies the source of intuition. He also discovered how opening and following the heart and opening to love are the keys to the happiness and genius 
that comes from our superconscious soul. Then, having lived the way of the heart for decades, he sat down to share what he had discovered. After 17 years of writing essays, booklets, and finally his well-documented book, The Magnificent Soul, The Art of Living in a World Founded in Consciousness, George brought forth a landmark work that may influence the way humanity views the human soul, consciousness, and the entire universe. With a background of science and a life filled with intuitive experiences, George has bridged the spiritual and scientific worlds in a new and fascinating way that turns reality right side up by placing consciousness at the foundation of the universe. To assist people who are learning to opening and following their hearts, George has been guided to found the Soul Covenant Organization. While the world appears to be growing more and more divisive, violent, and extreme, this organization endeavors to establish sanctuaries that will provide safe havens for open-hearted people to follow the way of the heart with kindred souls. The Soul Covenant Organization is just beginning. Hope is that this project will grow to become a global force for peace and prosperity for all. Most recently, George has written an autobiography to share the exciting adventures and challenging hurdles he encountered while learning what he presented in his first book. The new book is entitled, My Open-Hearted Life, Opening to Love While Solving Life's Greatest Mysteries. The end of this new book addresses the global upheaval by revealing deeper levels of science that have remained hidden to most people. It turns out Mother Nature is wonderfully nurturing and cooperative, while civilized humanity is awfully divisive. Regardless of the problems humanity is facing, George offers hope for a glorious resolution that will benefit everyone. Meet George at soulcovenant.org. Here is the interview with George Chais. In your own words, who is George Shish? Well, I'm a little person, a little human being, and um, I'm a feeble-minded person who follows my heart. And I know that uh, if I follow my heart, life works so beautifully, amazing. And people think I'm a genius, even though I know secretly I'm an idiot. <laughs> so. <laughs> but the heart is our genius. So I I follow it all the time. When did you start following your heart, George? Do you remember that moment in time? I think everybody is born following their heart. And that uh, So we receive messages from the heart through the pineal gland, which is an eyeball that receives electromagnetic radiation that comes from the heart shoots up into the brain every time we receive a message from the heart. And that was studied at Stanford University, but people's pineal gland calcifies. Most, a lot of that happens during puberty. Uh, just before puberty, children, uh, only about 2% of children have calcified pineal glands, but after puberty, by 17 years old, 40% of Americans have calcified pineal glands. And this is an eyeball. It's a little eyeball in the middle of your head. It's not near your forehead, where a lot of people think it is. It's actually in the center between your ears and 
straight back from your eyebrows, the center of your eyebrows. And, and um, that gland is a small eye. It has receptors that have neurons that wire it directly to the visual cortex. So sometimes we can receive messages as images, and sometimes they're feelings or thoughts. And in rare occasions, um, words are spoken inside your head. Yeah. And um, I started following that, I guess, when I was born. But um, when I was four, I had an incident with the Black Widow spider with my brother and uh, our another friend of ours. And they were, I was only four and, and my brother was seven and Stephen was eight years old. And um, we found this black widow spider. We put it in this box and came back the next day to look for it. And we couldn't see it. And the box had a door on it, a street door. And then the rest of it was wooden. And um, that door was about half the size of one side of the box. And you couldn't see like the space that was on the other side of the box because the doorway, you know, only allowed you to look in so far you know you couldn't see around the corner basically and so my brother and steve thought the spider got out this little crack and i knew intuitively you know from my heart that it was in the corner there that we couldn't see and i said no it's it's in the corner and they said oh no it got out this crack and i said well i noticed that it was that doorway was big enough that you could put your head in there so I said, why don't you put your head in and you'll see it. He said, oh, no, no, you got to put your head in. And I said, well, you're the ones that don't know. Don't if it's in there. You should put your head in. And they said, and they were, you know, they outsmarted me. I was only four. And they said, you know, you have to put your head in and prove to us that it's in there. And uh, I didn't know how dangerous black widow spiders were i knew they were dangerous but i didn't i don't think i knew that they could actually kill a four-year-old but um i was scared about doing it but i thought i'm gonna have the courage and i want to prove to these guys that i know what i'm talking about and i want i and they were older so i wanted to kind of you know prove to them you know i i know so i put I picked up the box and held it up over my head and the door swung open and I lowered it onto my head. And then I looked around and I couldn't see anything because it was dark, but my eyes adjusted. And suddenly there was right, right, right in front of my face and it scared the shit out of me. I mean, I was just so terrified. I threw the box and shivers and I, I screamed and cried and it was just, it was the most terrifying thing of my entire life. And it was all about my ego. And what prove not trusting <sighs> this knowledge is 100% correct. Mm. Oh my God, George. And so I think I became afraid not to follow my heart. And I just, from then on, um, without knowing what I was doing, just did it. 
And eventually, I went to um, MIT, and I correct these professors there that had were the authors of the textbooks and the world-renowned experts. And, and I just, I never studied in school. It was all so easy. I just answered intuitively. Right. One time I took this test and it was an American in history test and it was a standardized test that the, the U.S. Department of Health, I mean, Department of Education, wanted to find out what schools were teaching American history well and which ones weren't. So it wasn't a test for me. It was a test for the school. And the, and the teacher, when he gave us the test, he said, you know, don't worry about it. It's just to test the school. So, you know, and if you get done early, you can, you can get up and give me your test and leave. And I started looking through the booklet. And once he said, he looked at his watch and said, okay, go. And I opened this little booklet and it had all this reading and I hadn't been reading. I was really poor at reading. I, I just, I never did homework. I never studied. I never, you know, took, did the reading. Right. So I was really bad at it. And I was like, wow, <laughs> I don't think I could even read all the right, all the stuff written in this booklet, let alone answer the, you know, probably about a hundred questions, wow. you know? Yeah. So I thought, what do I do? What should I do? Yeah. And what came to me was to just read the questions and pick the best answer and don't worry about it. So I thought, well, that that's not a bad idea. I'll just do that. So I quickly went through and did that. And I was done 20 minutes early and I left the class. And then a couple of weeks later, when I came back to that class, when I went in the door, the teacher said, hey, George, how did you cheat on that test? <laughs> I'm like, I cheat on what test? What are you talking about? He said, that standardized test that we took a couple weeks ago. He said, you were the first one to leave. You left 20 minutes early and you got a perfect score. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so that was, a, that was a point where I, uh, later when I learned more about what this was, and tried to understand when are you following your heart and when aren't you following it, um, I realized that the answers are the first answer that comes. So when I was taking that test, and the first answer, the you know, as soon as I thought, oh, that looks like the best answer, I just marked it down on the sheet. You know, I didn't worry about it because it wasn't a test that I was concerned about. It wasn't, it was testing the school, not me. And that was a really remarkable situation where I, I thought I was guessing when he asked me, he said, you, you know, how did you do that? I said, I just guessed. And I laughed. So that was really interesting. Then I found out when I was at MIT and I was um, trying to solve this problem in this computer science class with when the authors of the textbook were the, were the professors. There were two of them. It was co-authored and it was considered, their book was considered the Bible of computer science. I think it still might be considered that. 
And um, it was Hal Abelson and Jerry Sussman. And, and um, they had a problem. You, so you had to do the homework. It was 80% of the grade. So, and the, the homework was writing computer programs and they were, you know, problems to do. And then there were a couple tests. They had two tests, a midterm and a final. But those were only 20% of the grade. So, so I had to do the homework in that class. And so I was doing this homework problem. And um, I just couldn't get it. I was really close. I thought I almost had, but there was one part of it where I didn't want the process to go into an infinite loop and spin out in one direction. And I couldn't figure out how to prevent that from happening. And I gave up and I just decided, geez, I've spent like two hours on this thing. I, I don't need a perfect score. I'm just going to hand this in, uh, incomplete, you know? So I handed it in, and the next day I'm sitting in class, and and Hal Abelson was talking, and it was he was telling some kind of story that I found a little boring, <laughs> and I drifted off into a daydream, and all of a sudden I knew the answer, how to do that, and it came to me in in, in a flash, and I was like, oh my gosh, it's so simple, and I thought, well. I guess that'll be on the answer sheet when I get it back, you know, next week. Well, the answer sheet came back and the official answer was, this is impossible. It's like, what? I know, I know how to do it. So I went to the lab, the computer lab, and got on the, one of the computers and logged in and changed my, edited my program and ran it and it worked. And I was like, oh my God, I solved the impossible problem. I didn't know it, but this class was being taken by industry professionals from around the world. These guys were considered the world-renowned gurus of computer science. And how did I know more than them? You know, and then uh, there was another one where there was this professor of system dynamics, and and he did this really kind of advanced mathematical approach to solving a problem. And he got to the end of it and he had the final equations and he said, so these two springs here are not in the equation, so therefore they're irrelevant. And I, and I raised my hand because I intuitively knew that they weren't irrelevant, but because they were the same value, they canceled each other out. They were the same stiffness. And I said, if one was stiffer than the other, they'd be in the equations. And he said, no, no, you don't understand. I said, no, you don't understand. And he said, well, we'll talk about this in my office after class. So we went to his office and, you know, and I drew the picture and I said, you know, if the spring was stiffer, then it would cause this to, you know, the force to have to be stronger. And if it was the other way, it would be weaker. And, and he said, um, no, I think uh, what you should do is redo the problem. And it was a homework problem, which I didn't do because it wasn't handed in or graded. So I hadn't done the problem, you know. And anyway, he said, uh, you know, just redo it using uh, the other method or whatever method you want. But you'll, you'll show yourself that you're wrong. Mm -hmm. And so I just went out and started partying like I did pretty much every night. <laughs> and, um <laughs> and he ends up the next day, he does, he starts doing the problem with two different springs. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, he's going to prove me wrong. You know? And 
he gets to the end and he says, George was right. And I thought, how could I know more than this? And that's the world renowned expert and author of the textbook, you know? But so one of the things I found, I eventually asked myself, I said to myself one day, where do all these answers come from? And I heard the words in my head, your heart. And I was like, what? My heart? That's a pump. How could that do it? You know, that's ridiculous. You know? But um, I had begun, I had decided at a, at a 27 years old, I was involved. Um, well, I, sh I should say that, um, you know, when I went to MIT, MIT paid for my education there. And they wanted to pay me to get a PhD and become a professor. I went, I had invented something. I was going to make hundreds of millions of dollars. I went to develop that. I made the prototypes. And then I realized the military would use this computer-aided design tool to design weapons. Mm. I, I saw that in the daydream, and I was like, oh, my God. I can't do it. So I, and there were other problems going on with my partner stealing seed capital from a, that I raised for the company and embezzling it. And anyway, I decided, you know, I don't want to do this. I don't even want to help the technology move forward because we're just destroying nature. And nature is absolutely amazing. A tiny little seed drops to the ground and forms an entire plant. A tree is formed from a tiny seed. That's miraculous. You know, there's no way we're going to figure out how to do that. Nature is brilliant. It's unbelievable. And as an engineer, I could see that. And I could also see, I had it uh, for my master's, I mean, my bachelor's degree, I went to General Motors Institute and I is a work study program. And I had done some work assignments in the factories at Foreman and stuff. And those factories are so awful. They're so toxic and stinky and just awful. And we're destroying nature to mine all these materials. And I'm like, oh God, I don't even want to be part of this. I just want to go back to nature. Eventually, I moved here to Maui, and I live in a tiny little cabin. It's 140 square feet, and, uh, 170 square feet, excuse me, and I'm building something for somebody that's 140 square feet. So <laughs> I step on that. But anyway, and I have nature all around me and bananas and coconuts and everything growing, and I harvest them myself and enjoy the fruits of nature and it's beautiful and but um i i dropped out you know i dropped out of the whole thing and and i eventually uh my friend my best friend at mit john hershtick he he developed an equivalent product i had the prototypes of mine done in 1987 he put a product on the market in 1997, 10 years later. It's called SolidWorks. It's the top computer-aided design tool in the world. 
and um, he sold the company in less than one year for $320 million. So that's, I had that 10 years earlier, something of that nature. And, um, but it's not about the money, you know, and following your heart rarely leads to lots of money. You know, um, it's led me away from money, but yet I've always had what I needed and I still do, you know, it, uh, it's not about becoming famous and wealthy. It's the way of the heart is a humble path, you know, and, um, it's a path where that is actually prophesized And it's interesting. And like, you know, a lot of the people you bring on, I've listened to a lot of the interviews you've done with people and a lot of it is, uh, spiritual interviews and involving shaman and involving, you know, uh, the spirit realm and, and the, uh, subtle body and all these kind of, you know, things like that. And, um, I always wondered why is there so much focus on something outside of us when the, the God is within our heart, you know? And I found that there's two paths. There's the way of the heart, and there is the ascension path. The way of the heart is where the meek inherit the earth. And the ascension path is for those who don't follow their hearts. Mm, wow. external spirit, a God in heaven, some spirit guide that they connect with, spirit realm and this spirit realm is a real thing that really exists you know in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth the earth is the physical realm the heavens is the spirit realm and and there is a spirit realm and we go there when we die and you know i've um, i've been there i've found several different ways to go there and i've explored it to some degree and I found that it isn't the way of the heart. And um, found that just simple living is, is on this earth is, is the way of the heart. And there's a prophecy that the meek will inherit, will inherit the earth once all of the divisive people have left the planet. And they will meet their twin flame and live until the end of time in their body. Without dying, they'll rejuvenate. It's a it's a fairy tale like a um, prophecy, but uh, I think it's true, and I think that this thing that's going on today, this world global upheaval, is leading to that inheritance. Um, I think that the removal of the divisive people is taking place right now. And there's, so there's this weird thing about divisive people. Like, why are there divisive people? One of the greatest questions is, if there is a God, why is there so much crime and murder and evil people on the planet? You know, there's an answer to that question. And um, if you think, go back, I had an experience with this girlfriend of mine. We were, um, she was teaching me this practice called Tantra. It's a kind of lovemaking practice that's uh, spiritually oriented. But it's also, you know, you have really great 
physical experiences too. So anyway, we were practicing that and um, I was doing some building projects and and I cut my finger halfway through on a giant saw, 12-inch compound miter saw. Anyway, this blade went halfway through and nicked my tendon. And the doctor said, you know, you cannot you do any work for two weeks. You, if you use even your other hand, when you use it and, and lift something heavy or whatever, you'll, you'll clinch, you'll clinch the, the hand that needs to rest. So you just have to stop working for two weeks. So the next time I saw my girlfriend, like I think it was maybe the next day, I said, uh, yeah, I've got two weeks that I'm not going to be doing anything. I just uh, I can't work. I can't continue to doing the building stuff I'm doing. And so um, I guess I got a couple of weeks of vacation. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got an idea. She was a nurse, and she took care of this wealthy lady, and the old elderly lady, along with other nurses. And she only worked two shifts a week, like these sixteen-hour shifts overnight. And um, she said, "You know what I'm going to do is rearrange my schedule with some of the other nurses, and I'll make a week. I'll open up a week, and let's go hiking." But every day we'll go hiking and we'll make love by the waterfall and the crater, all kinds of in the jungle everywhere. We'll go hiking every day and we may love for like two to three hours a day and using this technique where you don't release, you don't, you know, have the, the climax. Right. And um, so we did that for six days. And and then on the seventh day, we were going to release. But on the sixth day, when we were doing it, my whole being was, you know, in an or, a state of orgasmic bliss, you know, vibrating. And, and it was extending beyond my fingertips. It was unbelievable. It's an experience with this stuff. And anyway, and uh, I'm looking into her eyes and I... I have this thought. I have this thought that I would be willing to die. It would bring her more happiness. And it was like there wasn't any reason wasn't like that that could bring her more happiness by dying. But if a situation came up in which my sacrificing my life would give her more joy, I would do it. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And I found that's what love is, is being mm. sacrificed for the other, you know? Mm. And then the next day, yeah. we did the final session. And at the end, as we were getting, you know, the, the my body is completely going off and I'm running this energy between us in this circle. and And then my crown blows off and Water seems like it's gushing out of the top of my head and through my body, and my legs have all disappeared. Everything below my waist has disappeared. My hands start crumbling, and my whole being disappears, and all there is is this water flowing like a fountain, and then it disappears, and then I'm in a void. There's nothing. And then there's this explosion, and... It's all this this misty white space 
that my point of awareness is in this misty white space and there are these waves, there's spherical waves emanating from my point of awareness, expanding outward like balloons expanding. And each one is a wave of orgasmic, undulating, juicy bliss, one after another. And they keep expanding and more keep erupting forever and ever for as far as I could comprehend. I had become an infinite orgasm. And it was, I knew it was, it had to be the most amazing sensation that could possibly be felt. I was like, whoa. And then this weird thought came to me and said, it was like, what? Eventually, this would become boring. Like I would get used to it and I would want to do something else. And I thought, well, that's really strange to think of that because, you know, it still feels, (laughs) you know, and, and it was still going on, but I thought, I guess that's true. And then another thought came, like a memory that the one, the one consciousness that existed before the universe of time had already done that. It done everything it can do as one thing. And it was out of things to do as one thing. It came up with this idea. How would it feel to meet another? How would that feel? That's something it had never done. Because there is no other for the one. And in that state, I was the one. There was no other. There was just me. And I was infinite. And I knew, had remembered, why the universe was created. To find out how it feels to another. (laughs) And of course, love (laughs) is the most wonderful expression of that kind of meeting. But the problem was, how do you change the one into many? And so the one tried different things, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but to shorten it up, I'll just say that eventually the one created the heavens and the earth and humans, and the humans were meant to be the, the beings that would be individuals who would experience meeting one another. There was a problem. They knew they were part of everything and everything was part of them and they weren't separate. Now, the thing is, I met three anthropologists that lived with people before even the shaman existed in their tribe, you know, in their clan group. They were, you know, truly original people. And these anthropologists, I asked them, were those people individuals? And all three of them separately, independently said, absolutely not. They're not individuals. And this is the problem, is that the truth is, is everything is one. And to find out how it feels to meet another, you have to accept separation and duality. Well, a lot of spiritual people say that we need to get out of duality and we need to return to oneness consciousness. We actually were in oneness consciousness, and that was a problem. 
feels. What we really needed was to find out how it feels to meet the other. So to do that, a divisive process had to be set into play. And the divisive process involved divisive people. And the divisive people started with the shaman. It's really weird because we we so highly regard the shaman. Yeah. And medicine and the priest. And the priesthood and the medicine man are one in the shaman. Mm. And yet we see right now that the medical field is like diabolical. I'm it's really some crazy stuff right now, and we won't get into that, but the process of creating a shaman, just imagine you've got to try a group of people, a clan, whatever it is, whatever you want to call that group. And all of a sudden, you get a shaman. Now, where does this shaman, how does this shaman become a shaman? Well, in when we dream, when we go into, when we sleep, we enter the astral realm. We enter the heavens when we go to sleep. And in our sleep, we can meet spirit beings. And the spirit beings can guide us to eat the mushroom, to eat the hallucinogens. And the mascara is the first one in that we know of that was is the basis of Christianity. And, and the original word shaman comes from the people in the um, Siberia where the Anamita Mascara was this uh, a substance of use. There's pictures in churches of these mushrooms. This process of using the substance to enter the astral realm for longer periods of time created the shaman. And the shaman then taught about the spirit realm and how the big God is in heaven. It took people away from their hearts because the God is within as well as in heaven. There's, you know, different parts of this one that are playing all different roles. And now the shaman starts teaching to go to align with this external God. Well, this external God tells the people they need to circumcise the men, which is a brutal process. You know, this external God tells them to go to war. This external God tells, you know, basically creates the madness of civilization, you know, and, and, and the inner God, the one in your heart is just leading you to love and, and you know everything. I'll give you a little quote from Albert Einstein. He said, when talking about theoretical physics, he said, the state of mind which enables a man to do work of this kind is akin to that of the religious worshiper or the lover. The daily effort comes from no deliberate intention or program, straight from the heart. That's Einstein. Here's another quote from him. The intuitive mind is a sacred gift and the rational mind is a faithful servant. We have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift, the intuitive mind, which is in the heart. 
intellect, here's another one from Einstein, the intellect has little to do on the road to discovery. There comes a leap in consciousness, call it intuition or what you will, and the solution comes to you and you don't know how or why. That's my life. All the time, the answer comes and I don't know how or why. But it's always right. Mm, And then my mind will often get in the way and think, oh, well, maybe it should be a little this way. (laughs) Different. You know, (laughs) screw it up, of course. But anyway, (laughs) so, you know, this is it. And when we wonder, you know, like, is this possible that the universe is made of consciousness? Well, here's Max Planck. Do you know Max Planck got a Nobel Prize in 1918? for developing quantum theory. He was the beginning of quantum theory, of the whole quantum thing. Planck's constant is the number that is the ratio between the wavelength of light and the amount of energy in a photon of that wavelength. And he, so he, in 1931, he said, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. We cannot get behind consciousness. Everything that we talk about, everything that we regard as existing, postulates consciousness. Then later in 1944, Planck said, there is no matter as such. All matter originates and exists only by virtue of a force which brings the particle of an atom into vibration and holds this most minute solar system of the atom together. We must assume behind this force the existence of a conscious and intelligent mind. This mind is the matrix of all matter. So it's the mind, it's this consciousness, this one enormous consciousness that has created this whole thing to find out how it feels to meet another. And to do that, we have to be separate. And to be separate, we have to have these divisive people pushing us apart and making us feel separate. So the whole process is put into play and it's all perfect and there's no good people and evil people and right and wrong. Everybody's playing their role. All the roles are perfect. And when the divisive people go into the heavens, there's a really interesting property of the heavens, which I experienced when I was there, that whatever you desire, whatever you think of will appear and every desire you have can be satisfied in the heavens except for one. And that one is how does it feel to meet another? Because the other, there is no other. When you're in the heavens, everything, you create your own reality. You know, this whole idea of you create your own reality It comes from astral travel. There's all kinds of people that do astral travel. There's all kinds of schools. There's international schools. There's all kinds of books on it. 
it can be studied and you can, there are techniques. You don't need any substances. You can do it with techniques and you can explore the astral realm. And it's very, very interesting. In fact, there's a, it's endlessly interesting. And it's so interesting and so endless that you can get completely absorbed in it and not even participate in life. So this is a distraction to me. And even though it's, it's the foundation of religion, of most spirituality, I don't, I have no interest in it. I want to just, I've explored it, I've learned about it, and then I'm like, once I finally realize how it all fits together, I'm like, I don't want anything to do with that. I just want to connect with the earth, with my friends, and experience meeting the other. It's here in the physical realm where two pieces of consciousness are embodied in two separate bodies and we get to meet each other, the birds, and we get to meet the bees and the plants and everything. And it's all different parts of this consciousness and we have relationships with everything. And, and of course, the most wonderful relationship is love. I've noticed that you often ask a question to your <laughs> about um, about self-love and unconditional love. Yes, yeah. And I'd like to say something about love yeah. if you don't mind. Oh yes, please. So yeah. love is um is very interesting. I I start I decided to do a little research on it, you know, and I found out that it's actually pretty new love. I found that the people that existed before civilization, the original people, didn't have lust or love. They were in um, a state of oneness. They didn't see another. So what's the point of loving if everything is you? And, and when you look at like um, romantic love, it's only uh, historians claim it's four to 600 years old. That's it. Four to six hundred years old. It's not even Christ. Christ didn't even have romantic love, right? But we put it in all kinds of movies, you know, which have Cleopatra and whatever, you know. But that doesn't mean it existed then. We just have put it into the script. Um, but soulmates is only two hundred years old. So um, this uh, love thing is actually pretty new. And some people say it's oh it's all love it's all love well it's all consciousness and love I think is the most interesting experience of meeting the other and it doesn't there is no such thing as conditional love there's conditional lust which is very different than love like lust is when you see something like a chocolate cake for example and you think oh wow that looks good I would like to eat some of that well, it has nothing to do about the cake having any kind of joyful experience. You just want to have some because you'll enjoy it, right? It's a very selfish thing, lust. Or you see someone that's handsome or beautiful and you think, oh, I would like to make love with that person and that would probably feel good and that's your selfish again. But with love, it's the other thing. It's when you feel you're willing to sacrifice yourself for the other and so and that feeling comes from your heart you just feel 
that you want to do something for that other person. And you go out of your way to do it. And it's not like you have to sacrifice your life or anything. You know, it's just the, the willingness to take some of your time and put it towards bringing joy to that other person. And so, and this is not conditional. It just either you feel it or you don't, you know? And the, what I found in um, my practice was and connecting with my soul and my heart. I call it my soul or the superconscious soul in my heart. And um, so I, I finally fell in love with my heart, with my soul and my heart. And I thought to my, it was after my parents had died and I didn't have any parents in my life. I only had this one kind of uh, guardian in my heart. And I realized one morning doing a little uh, gratitude thing that I do when I make my smoothie out of the coconut water and the bananas around my house. And, and I, um, I, I, give thanks for everything, for the plants that created it all and the great spirit that created everything. And, and then I thank my soul and my heart. And one day at the end of my whole thing, it said, I love you. And I was like, wait, I didn't, I didn't say that. I didn't say the I love you part. And then I realized, wait a minute. Why haven't I ever thought of loving this consciousness in my heart? So. The next morning I woke up and I had the first part of a little song. And the morning after that, I had the second part. And um, here's how it goes. Dear soul in my heart, you're the love of my life. Dear soul in my heart, I love you. If there's a God for me to love, it's the one inside my heart. It's the one that is me. I love you. It's this kind of, what do you call it, a, a paradox. It's you, but it's not you. <laughs> and it's a way to love yourself without it being narcissistic. You know, you can love yourself as this God that's within you and be grateful for it. And you can, you can be willing to sacrifice what your ego mind wants right. to do what your heart knows is right. Mm, yeah. You know? Yeah. Maybe not have the chocolate cake. Yeah. <laughs> Although I usually have the chocolate cake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Can we have that too? <laughs> uh, oh, my God, George. I mean, you're so beautiful. I have to say that. I see beauty in that, uh, that word that connects to nature. So every time I am in nature, uh, looking at plants, the ocean, I see beauty. <laughs> so I see beauty in you. So it's um, you being nature, which it's I see everyone, all human beings. We are not apart from nature. We are nature. Yeah, we are. So we're almost at the end of the conversation today. We had so many other questions for you. <laughs> ah, so well, many, so many. Do it again sometime. That I'm would be sorry, fun. I kind of took over and just went for it. But 
I don't know. That just happens sometimes. Yeah, and I love that. That is flow. That is being life itself. It's doing what the heart wants to do. Thank you so much for being open again. I don't know if I can say that, being open. It's just a, a moment of gratitude. It's wonderful to be here and to experience this. I don't know what this is, but it's just amazing. <laughs> I don't have words for it. It's just incredible. Thank you for being part of this reality, which I... I don't have other words to use <laughs> for this experience, I guess. Reality, life, whatever we call it. Yeah. Thank you. You know, there's one final thing I'd like to close with. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So uh, I, I, there's this Angela Artemis uh, is a writer and teacher, and she had this quote that I found, the intuitive mind is where our genius resides. Mm. And so I, I started... Uh, I, I was guided to look up the um, word genius and I and the origin of the word. And uh, it's it's it begins in late Middle English from Latin. and and it's weird what it means. Mm. It means an attendant spirit mm. present from one's birth, mm. innate ability or inclination. So it's actually your mm -hmm. genius is a spirit that attends you from birth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I believe sense. it resides in your heart. Yeah. So that's very, you know, and then it, it evolved over time to become our exceptional abilities. But, um, you know, this is interesting that this word genius actually points directly at a spirit that attends you from birth. So this is what we all have, and we're all, everyone can follow it. But most people look outside of themselves. They want money, yeah. they want fame, they want whatever yeah. that is outside that they want to get. And the, the guidance inside is not leading you that way. So you have to put it away. You have to not listen to it. Or... And I don't know if you ever got your heart broken when you were a kid, but I did. Yeah, me too. I did. Yeah. And, you know, I, yeah, I think it might have been my soulmate. And she got taken to Italy and her hand promised to some mafia kid. I mean, it's like a crazy story. But, you know, we often get our heart broken during those early years of adolescence. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people say, boy, that hurt too much. I am not going to listen mm. to them anymore. True. And people turn away to follow their mind. And um, and that's the end of that. And if, if you're not going to listen, I think you get, I think the soul in your heart calcifies the pineal gland. Mm. It's interesting. The pineal mm. gland has a vein that goes directly to the pineal gland. Even though it's buried in the middle of the brain, which is which is protected with the blood-brain barrier, but not that gland. That wow. gland has a direct supply of blood from the heart. Wow. So weirdly, there's even, you know, kind of physiology that supports the idea that the, the heart could calcify the pineal gland intentionally. Mm. There you go. Wow. So looks like... You know, it depends on what the person is doing, and it's up to you whether you want to follow your heart or not. 
Yeah, that's a, a, such an interesting, I mean, conversation we can have. I would love to continue the conversation on free will. For some reason, it doesn't resonate. Like it's just said before, it's life doing what it does. It's just this amazing happening. That there's no reason to be, but it is anyway. It's free, completely free. And yet the mind would judge as if, you know, somebody else that um, other things around us is doing things uh, differently for a reason with a purpose. And yeah, they might have a purpose. It doesn't feel like it is something personal in any way. So it's not personal. It's just uh, this amazing happening, as I just said. Just that, that word is coming to me, happening that's fulfilled already. It's already complete in itself. It's an amazing, amazing experience to have. Thank you so much again, George, for being part of it. (laughs) It's just incredible to listen to you. And I would love to continue the conversation because I have so many more questions. Well, I want to thank you so much for um, being so patient with everybody you work with. It's a beautiful thing that you're doing. Thank you. And I want to mention before we say goodbye that you have written two books, My Open-Hearted Life, Opening to Love While Solving Life's Greatest Mysteries. And the other one is The Magnificent Soul, The Art of Living in a World Founded Unconsciousness. Amazing books that I had so much information. I have been reading them and I just had so many questions for today. <laughs> I was wondering how we would be going through all that, but yeah. amazing information. I mean, it's so insightful, intuitive. That's what it is. And as you connected the heart with intuition, yeah, that resonates true energetically. I guess my last question is this one. George, I'll ask you about freedom. What is to be free? What is freedom to you? Oh, freedom. Well, I think freedom is when you're willing to let go and expectations and follow what feels right for you rather than, you know, what you're guided to accomplish or please your parents or please somebody. You know, we we create our own trap by uh, buying into the norms and constraints of society. Society is really there to divide us into individuals. And uh, if we just let go of those constraints and realize that we can follow our heart and do whatever we want, Mm. it'll work out perfectly. Yeah, and trust that, right? As you said earlier, trust. You're right, it's trusting it. Yeah. Absolutely. Before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Yeah, I have a website that's um, soulcovenant.org. And um, my books are on there. And um, there's a little other information there, um, how to contact me and things like that. So um, that's that's my gateway is through the uh, soul covenant mm. org wonderful i'll have the link on your podcast profile i yeah. hear the birds <laughs> why are you yeah. speak yeah. it's so beautiful singing 
Thank you so much again for your presence, George, in this reality and whatever is happening here. I appreciate your presence. Uh, it's truly magical. Okay, bye for now, but we'll be in touch okay. again, George. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. Aloha. Aloha. Thank you for listening. To learn more about George Chais and his work, please visit soulcovenant.org. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now. <laughs>